Hey, thanks for joining us on this episode of Unbeatable. Kara has got a secret to tell. And chances are, Kara's secret is similar to something that you've gone through in the past. I can't wait to introduce you to my guest, Kara Boyer, on this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life. You're listening to Unbeatable with Jeff Struker. Hey, Cara, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to meet you. Hi, it's great to be here. I've been really excited to meet with you and chat for a little while. Yeah, you're dressed warm. You got the Christmas tree going in the background. It looks like uh, you're um, coming to me from one of those parts of America that's cold and snowy this time of year. (laughs) Yeah, I'm visiting my family in Minnesota for the holidays, and I was really blessed to be able to visit for a longer period of time this year. I live in California now. I grew up in Minnesota, so visiting the family and just getting a little bit of time with them. It's really awesome. That's cool. You, uh, I'm hoping that you get a chance to see a white Christmas in Minnesota because that's probably not going to happen if you're living in California, especially Southern California. Oh, you're so right about that. Sometimes it doesn't even feel like Christmas there. I've spent one Christmas there since I moved in. Yeah, this year it'll. I'm pretty confident that it'll stay. Yeah, white Christmas. <laughs> Let's hope for a white Christmas for Cara this year. <laughs> um. So, uh, talk about a little. Uh, tell us a little bit about you. Let's talk about your upbringing. You're at home with family in Minnesota. Can you describe a little bit about what life was like for you as a girl? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a child of three. I'm the oldest. Um, I have a brother and a sister, and. Uh, My mom and my dad, they raised us in a suburb of Minneapolis. So me being the oldest, I feel like my parents kind of poured into me like with high expectations. And we were actually homeschooled. Um, My siblings and I were homeschooled up until around middle school age. So my first time setting foot in a school was actually eighth grade. And so an important part of my upbringing was my mom taught me everything that I knew academically. And I think looking back on that experience, I really, really value all those years that I got to spend with my family so close. You know, I think there's downsides to the homeschooling thing and also um, really amazing things. And so when I think back to that time in my life, I, I think I tend to just think about it really positively now. I think uh, there were probably years I didn't appreciate it as much, but yeah, that was something that was unique about me and kind of how I was raised growing up. I had a very close relationship with my mom and my siblings and my dad would um, go work all day. So he would provide for the family and um, yeah, it was kind of a challenging environment at home growing up because my parents didn't always get along. And I think I'm not alone when I say this, you know, the difficulties in the household yeah, and all that, but yeah. um, it affected us, you know, as a family and to the point where I think looking back on my story and kind of like appreciating the moments of my upbringing, I think that what happened was my parents wanted me to do the best I could. They had the high, high expectations, uh-huh. the high bar. And then during all the fighting and stuff, I felt like I also had to shine. I had to you know, kind of go above and beyond to not let my mom down if she felt discouraged about the relationship and kind of how to keep dad happy and stuff. Um, I've gone through forgiving my parents and, you know, we have a a healthy relationship now, but during those years, it wasn't healthy. And I think that I had, I harbored a lot of anger about that for a long time. And I think it contributed to me being sick for so long Um, because yeah. Well, I was about to say, being the oldest and being the oldest in a homeschool family, and by the way, I have the greatest respect for parents that homeschool. Um, It's not for everybody, but I think for the folks that can do it, it is the greatest learning experience for a child, and it's a parent's way of passing on their values and their faith. Um, I I, I have the greatest uh, respect for for your parents for that, Um, but I was just thinking about you. If you're the oldest, um, there's a whole lot of firstborns out there that are super bossy and high achievers <laughs> because they had a lot of responsibility placed on them, right? Like you had brothers, yes. uh, you had siblings, and you're older, and so naturally, parents expect you to help along with uh, uh, with the siblings a little bit. Was that you growing up? 
Um, I think to a degree, yes. I saw my friend who was also in a similar situation. She was the oldest, but she ended up with siblings that were about eight years younger than her. Oh, yeah. Built-in babysitter. Yeah, for me, my siblings, my uh, my brother, the next one in line, he was three years younger than me. And then my sister is seven years younger. So there came a point where I think I was staying home with them, but I don't, it doesn't stick out to me as like a, I had so much responsibility. I had to do this for them. I had to do that for them. I felt like my parents were very present and there wasn't a lot of time where all the responsibility rested on my shoulders to carry, like, you know, take care of the younger siblings. But I think I did feel an emotional responsibility and almost like a protective uh-huh. responsibility. Like I, I think reflecting back, what stands out to me is I think that I felt like maybe I had to set the emotional example when it comes to my parents fighting. Cause if the three of us were, you know, kind of in the upstairs bedroom, if my parents were, you know, having a disagreement and it was getting loud, then I had to, I felt like I maybe should distract them or like try to keep them happy or tell them it's going to be okay. And so I think I probably gained some strength and maybe some, you know, just like a, I should step into like a, you know, like a leadership sort of emotional role for them. Sure. Which that's what, that's what comes to mind. Do you, how far back do you remember your parents' arguments going? Like, when do you feel like you felt the need to start kind of making some peace in a tumultuous home? Um, I think that I could remember all the way back to around when I was eight years old. I think that's kind of when my sort of tendency to want to control how I looked started. And I have talked to some other people as well who their, you know, their issues with body image, they started at a very young age, around eight years old. It's probably when girls start to develop and you know, you start to become more wary of yourself. But I think around that time is when I started to between the ages of eight and 11 years old, it stands out as I become, I start to become more aware of that and remembering those arguments and just they increase as I go into my teenage years. Without going into too much detail, um, when your parents were arguing, is this screaming and yelling at each other? Are we talking about throwing things at each other? Do they get mad and one of them leaves the house and you don't know if they're ever coming back? What were arguments like for your parents when you were growing up? Sure. So most of it was, um, it was just very vocal and loud and kind of like yelling. Up. Yeah. I think my mom sounding scared and it would make me feel scared. Uh-huh. Um, but thankfully things didn't tend to get physical. And so I think when I look back on that, I'm like, oh, it could have been worse. You know, it could have been the yelling plus the people getting hurt. Right. And so I think that, I don't know, I, I believe that God protected us and everything. And it was mostly just a lot of yelling. And I think that's how I would summarize it. Yeah. Well, first, thanks for just sharing that part of your childhood with us. Cause I think there are people that are listening right now who had the parents that screamed and yelled, they had the home where one of them left and they felt the anxiety of not knowing if mom was ever going to walk back in the door or if dad's gone for good. And unfortunately there are some that are watching this or listening that had the house that they hit each other. They threw things at each other. They physically abused each other. And anybody who grew up in that kind of environment would understand the anxiety, the stress that that puts on children. Even though children may not be part of the argument, they're acutely aware of what mom and dad are doing. Um, But there are some who are watching this or listening to this podcast who didn't grow up in that environment. And it's hard for them to understand what this would have put on you any child in this environment, but especially the oldest child. Yeah. Did you, would you consider yeah. yourself pretty much driven um, and a high performer um, as a teenager, y- young woman um, when you were in school? Yes, I do. Um, I, I don't think I really was aware of it at the time. I just kind of had this I think my parents kind of like set the expectation for me. Yeah. 
and I didn't really have much to compare it to being a homeschooled child. So <laughs> I just kind of was like, okay, this is what's, this is what I got to do. And it's actually, I wrote, um, I've been writing about this recently, but I think I recently figured out that I really cared about what my parents thought yeah. about how I looked, the quality of my work and like how good I did. I think I really tried to strive to make them proud of me and help them like see like, you know, I can, I can live up to expectations right. and I can like make you proud. You know, I think that's probably pretty, pretty normal. And a kid, you sure. know, you want to make your parents yeah. proud and you want to be accepted and all that. And so I think I was working really hard without giving it too much thought. I think yeah. it was just kind of what I did. And as I got into high school, I, I think I started to see I was different. Um, I, I saw that I was willing to do a little bit more work in some areas and I, it didn't make me feel separate from people, but I just noticed. Yeah. And so I, I would say that, and it was, it was something that I felt it kind of like helped my self-esteem as well. Cause I struggled with body image. I struggled with my own self image. Uh -huh. So if I could be a high achiever, if I could kind of strive for perfection, it, it made me feel like I was doing okay. It, I had some control yeah. over the situation. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm asking this question because for people who have no concept of homeschooling whatsoever, some of them are going to hear this phrase and they're going to think, oh man, it would be so awesome to be Cara and to be able to hang out <laughs> and do school for 30 minutes a day and then play games the rest of the day. What they don't understand is that your teacher, i.e. mom or dad, you can't ever get anything over on your teacher. So, I mean, can you describe right. a little bit of kind of the pressure? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a privilege, but there's also some unique pressures that go along with being a homeschooled child with your parent as your teacher. Yeah, you're so right about that. And that actually, I haven't thought about that before. Um, hey, by the way, we homeschooled, my wife and I homeschooled our children for many years, so they didn't get away with anything with us. That's why I know that. <laughs> I think, you know what, that's so funny you mentioned that. I I don't think that I really tried to break any rules from like a very young age. I think that was kind of just instilled in me. Like I knew uh -huh. that I couldn't get away with things. And, you know, we, we got in trouble and stuff and, you know, we're punished and things like that. But I think it was mostly just for like bothering each other at the school table. Like we, we sat in the same room. Yeah. And we... I don't know, your, your kids, sometimes you get fidgety and you get bored of what you're doing and, and you act like know, a child. Sure. Yeah. You want to bother your siblings. So yeah. I would, I think I would try to. You're passing notes I, behind a teacher's back is basically <laughs> what you're doing. I thought it was funny, you know, yeah. and you know, pretty soon and I would get corrected or, uh -huh. you know, warned and stuff like that. I, it was, it wasn't, um, I never felt resentful or anything. I really, really loved yeah. my, my mom and I thought she did a good job. And I thought she always, um, she had really strong attention to detail mm -hmm. as well. I can specifically remember learning grammar and just like, you know, she was really good at it. And she would always say, well, I wasn't, I didn't go to school to be a teacher. So sometimes I don't feel like I'm doing a very good job, but I think back on that and I think she yeah. did a really good job. Yeah in a lot of ways. And yeah, I think that was one of the reasons she sent us to school around the age of like, you know, middle school. Uh -huh. Cause she, I think she was like, Oh, I don't feel confident because I didn't get a degree in teaching. Yeah. So yeah, but I don't know. It was, it was interesting, you know, spending time with your parents all day. I, I never felt like I wanted to get away from her or anything. We, we were pretty close. Yeah. So for those people out there that are saying, I totally wish I was homeschooled so that I could get over on my parents and hang out and play games all day long instead of going to school. It's actually the other way around with parents that are very detail oriented and very um, serious about education. Like you live yeah. with your parent is basically what happens. I mean, you live with your teacher. Imagine living with your high school English teacher. That's what it <laughs> may, may feel like. Yeah. Uh, hey, you've alluded to this a couple of times already. People have already picked up on this by now, but you've talked about your struggles with body image. Yeah. So let's go back to your battle with your secret struggle. Can you just describe for everybody, you know, how this started and what it was like to struggle with the 
body image and eating disorder. Yes, absolutely. So um, I think the seeds got planted many years before I started to have what they call eating disorder behaviors, and I'll explain. Um, But I think around eight years old, I started to just pay attention to how my body was looking. And I started to become paranoid that I would get fat. And so I think that during that time, I did a lot of different things to kind of control how I looked. That would be a lot of sit-ups every day. And really as an eight year old girl, you were doing sit-ups every day. Mm -hmm. Holy smokes. I was hyper aware. I was hyper aware. And I was 15 years old. I just had um, gotten hired for my first job. I was working at a fast food restaurant and I just remember the very first day I was at work, the manager there said, Oh yeah. When I started here, I gained about 10 pounds and everyone kept talking about how much weight they gained as they were starting to work there. And what happened in my mind was I got really fearful. I got fearful that I was going to become like that. And I was like, Oh, that's not something that I can do. So I think at that point I started to develop bulimia. And um, for anybody listening who doesn't know what bulimia is, it's a pattern. It's a mental health diagnosis, um, an actual eating disorder that I got diagnosed with probably around the age of 20 because I didn't actually go seek Mm -hmm. help for that long. But you intentionally um, throw up your food. And it can be, you know, without going into too much detail, it can be done in different ways. You can be eating a lot of different, like a lot of food that would be more than maybe what you would normally eat, kind of classified as like a binge episode. Uh Or some people just self-induce throwing up regular amounts of food and then some people instead of throwing up they actually over exercise as a form of kind of purging if you will yeah where you're trying to compensate for what you ate and it's the cycle of like guilt and controlling and kind of shaming yourself over and over again for what you've done and it's a problem and it becomes an addictive pattern so i remember like the very first time I did that. And I remember feeling like, oh, I shouldn't do this. I'll probably get addicted to this pattern. And you knew I had that, that from the first sex. time? Yes. How I old were that. you? I was almost 16 years old. And I remember were... it happened right before I turned 16. Okay. And I remember just like standing there and just feeling sad that I had done that. And then I said, I wish that I hadn't done that because now I probably won't be able to stop. And that was exactly what happened. I'm amazed that you recognize that from the very first time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hey, those comments that people were making about you, were they deliberately made to make you feel bad? Or did you just people just making what would be normal comments about a child and you just interpreted those, you know, kind of, as they, they became negative comments to you that kind of stuck with you. Um, in other words, did you have a lot of people just making bad comments about the way that you looked when you were a girl that led to that first time that you intentionally threw up? I'd say that there was, there was one memory in particular where somebody told me, somebody very close to me told me, um, basically in a, in a hurtful way not to eat a second helping of food because I had a little extra on me Uh and I was mortified by that comment. And so of course I reel back and I think, have I gained weight without even paying attention? And that made me feel really afraid. And it made me feel like I had some sort of inability to perceive how I looked. And I, at that time, like I kind of how I was mentioning before, it was hard for me to kind of come back to my center and just know, like, I, like, I don't need to identify or agree with that comment. Like, I know what's good for me and I can do what I want to do, but it was, I was really young and I didn't know how to, I didn't have that skill set yet. I didn't have that defense system in place, but it was that comment particularly. And then it was, I don't think any particular comment about how I looked, but 
just more noticing the culture around me, the uh, people in my family, how they talked about weight, food, and size. Yeah. It really contributed to me feeling like I've really got to control this no matter what. It's unacceptable to not control yeah. this. Well, and I'm, I had no idea how to control it. Yeah. I'm asking the question because there's guys listening to this who had a coach in high school who said, hey, you're too scrawny for this sport or you're not mm. fast enough. And they felt like they were inferior. And maybe the coach never meant anything harmful about it. They just, sure. in the coach's mind, there's a prototypical player and you don't fit that mold. So why are you here? Or the girl that heard, you know, like you, hey, maybe you shouldn't wear a two-piece bathing suit because you don't have the body for it, but the girl sure. next to you does. And it was never meant to be ugly or disparaging, but what was said just cut them all the way to the bone. Oh, totally. I can completely understand that. And when I hear stories like that, it's horrifying to think about how that can affect a young person who yeah. hasn't really solidified their identity right. yet and I have I have a lot of opinions about how forming an identity is really important for self-esteem and body image healthy body image but I didn't actually know that at the time and I didn't know that I should be t spending time like kind of figuring out like who I wanted to become and how my thoughts and like the things that I continued to give life to the thoughts the words I didn't know that that was going to accumulate to becoming um, an eating disorder, like an addiction in my life. And yeah, I think that's so, that's a tough, a tough yeah. um, part about being a young person. Cause if you don't have people in your life kind of teaching you those things, you might come across people like making comments towards you that you really don't know what to do with. And then it shapes who you are. Yeah. And it's kind of sad. Yeah. Well, I want to point out a couple of things. You already know this, Cara, but for those that are paying, that are uh, not aware of this, one, you're hearing people making comments and you grow up in a house that people are pretty focused on the way that you look and your health and your fitness. Um, that alone creates a little bit of attention and focus on your health and your body image and your weight. Um, but also you live in Minneapolis. At the time you, um, when you're growing up. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And Minneapolis, if I'm not mistaken, is the healthiest, fittest city in America. Is that right? You know what? I, I've heard the same thing. And I think that they attribute it to all of the, like the bike paths. And yeah. we have like a lake network that there's paths around. There's so many opportunities to, you know, you can go out and be active any time of the year. And so I've, I've definitely heard that before. Yeah. So I'm saying that because if you look at the research, the, there's some uh, organizations out there that, that research the most unhealthy cities in America, and they base this on body weight, and they base this mm -hmm. on um, hospitalizations and stuff like that, and the healthiest cities. And they all say that the healthiest cities, people are active and they're um, outside and that they weigh less. So you grew up in a city where maybe the biggest or the, the most focused city in America on how people in that community look, um, not necessarily for any of the wrong reasons. It's just, uh, it just happened to be the city that you grew up in. Yeah. And you're a 15 year old girl who's now working in the food industry and starting to de develop a very unhealthy relationship with food. So can you tell everybody what this was like when it started to become a full-on addiction for you? Absolutely. It was really, it wasn't terrible at first. I, I, I want to be completely transparent. I, I kind of allowed it to exist in my life as a teenager. And this was something that I didn't tell my parents about. They ended up finding out about later. I was obviously, this was my biggest secret. Why did you keep and it a secret before we go on? Why was it so much of a secret? I was embarrassed about it. I didn't know how to stop. Uh -huh. And I also liked that I could use it to cope with stress uh -huh. and comfort. So for you, it was not just shameful, but it was also a tool that you could it use. Was. 
Yeah. It was definitely a tool. And I used that as a way to manage my weight when I was a teenager. And it was just kind of this thing that, and it, it did, um, it did give me some of the things that I'd so desperately wanted. And what happened was that made me be even more dependent on it. Yeah. And it was so difficult for me to imagine my life without it, even though I knew that I didn't, I thought that one day I'll just get over this. I'll grow out of it. And that's what I believed. But as I got older, I decided to go to school to become a nurse. And I was in nursing school. I was 19, 20, 21. I had awareness at that point that I just, I felt like, okay, I'm going to become a healthcare professional. This is not like congruent with my vision for my career. And so I decided I'm going to go get help. And at this point, my parents had found out and I had convinced my parents that I was going to stop on my own. I convinced them that this wasn't a problem. Like this wasn't a huge issue. It didn't need to be. I, I minimized it. Yeah. And I said, I basically said whatever I needed to do to kind of get people off my back. And I wanted to be able to handle it myself. I didn't want I didn't really want to stop at that point that they found out. So I kind of said whatever I needed to say to get them off my back. I, I liked being able to rely on it when things got tough. Um, sometimes that meant daily eating disorder behaviors. And sometimes that meant there was times in between where I felt guilty about having that in my life. Yeah. And I tried to just give it up on my own, but I didn't have the steps in place to recover on my yeah. own. And so eventually I got to this place when I became a nursing student where I said, okay, I'm really going to have to address this. And I, I decided to go to a treatment program. You mentioned Minneapolis and it being, you know, the healthiest city in America or one of them. And I was a person who would run. I would, I would re run religiously almost every day. And if I couldn't do that, it was, it was just another thing that I used to control yeah. my life, but also it kind of gets a little bit sticky when it comes to exercise and movement because that is also good for you. Yeah. And so the release takes, and the release of endorphins makes you feel exactly, pretty good, right? Yeah, exactly. So when it comes to exercise, you know, you can, you can have a very unhealthy relationship with something that's supposed to be really good for you. Kind of like food, food is supposed to nourish you and be enjoyed and, but we can use food as like a, a way to cope and deal with stress and it can be really harmful. So exercise can be a sticky area as yeah. well, but oh, yeah. I definitely used exercise as part of the way to control my life and how I looked. And I didn't really think anything of it at that point because I was actually enjoying exercise at that time in my life. And I enjoyed the frequency and the amount of time that I was spending doing it, but it wasn't until later when I tried to keep that up as I got older and my, my interests changed, I didn't yeah. want to run anymore. I wanted to do other things. And as, as I started to get older, I started to realize I didn't enjoy how intense my yeah. workout regimen had become. I said, <laughs> I don't want to be doing this like this, but then I felt like I had to, Yeah, I had to continue to maintain what I had set up for my life to control everything. And I think that's kind of what I would say about how it was like at the beginning, like experiencing that dilemma in my mental yeah. health and just my need to control the situation. Well, you, I just picked up on the comment. You, your parents found out um, and you didn't want to stop this eating disorder where maybe you were still feeling a little bit of shame about it, um, but right. you... I expected to hear you say, I wanted to stop, but couldn't. You said, I didn't want to stop. And by the way, this went on for you. Uh, it started at 15. You're a 20-year-old nursing student now realizing, mm -hmm. hey, something is not good here and it really right. needs to change. But it didn't change right away, right? You, you continued Correct. your nursing school and you're still struggling with this eating disorder. Yeah, you're totally right about that. I did not, my problems weren't solved right away when I started therapy. 
I actually went for an intake at a treatment program. One that you could, you know, go to and uh -huh. you could see a therapist and they were specially trained. They were a specially trained um, eating disorder center. So I worked up the courage to go there. And this probably took about, you know, six months to kind of work up the courage once I learned about it, maybe even longer. Mm -hmm. I think that once I learned about it, there was still part of me that thought I could do it on my own. And I just remember, you know, going to that treatment program during nursing school and nursing school is very Intense. rigorous. You have to do, yeah. yeah, you have to do a lot of studying. Um, your life is basically nursing school. You can't carry a full-time job mm -hmm. and, you know, be able to do nursing school as well as you could. Maybe some people can, but for me, um, that was my experience. I yeah. could only work part-time and I was still, you know, struggling with nursing school. And so I had this really busy schedule where I was, you know, renting a room. I didn't live at home at that time. And so I had some bills. I had some responsibility in my life and I was, you know, taking responsibility for school. I wanted my future to be bright uh -huh. and, you know, me being the achiever that I am, I knew that I could do it, but I also knew I had this problem that I felt like I, this problem can't come forward yeah. with me, Yeah. but it wasn't that easy. It just wasn't that easy. So I went to the treatment program. I probably went for about six or seven months. And then what happened after that was the bills started to rack up and I couldn't keep up with them uh -huh. as a student. And I was already using student loans to help cover some of my bills. It was just a, a challenging time financially for me. And yeah. so I wanted to continue, but I kind of weighed what was going on. So I went to therapy, the bills were here, but then I still felt like I was struggling the same amount that I was when I started and I wasn't really making the progress that I had hoped. So I think about that. And as a person who I have to graduate from nursing school, cause I spent yeah. so much time, energy and money. You got way too education. much money not to graduate. Yeah. And if I didn't, if I didn't pass one of my classes at, that was my priority at the time. Yeah. It should have been my health, but at the same time, I knew that like I really had to pass my nursing studies because if I didn't, I would be, I didn't know what I would do because I had spent so much money on it already. And I had also, I also knew that I would have to wait a year Yeah. if I put in, I just, I wasn't willing to wait a year and I just wanted to graduate and have my career. And I dropped out of therapy right before um, the last semester of my nursing program. Uh-huh. And I remember I was uh, dating a guy at the time and this person was a nurse and I confided in him. I said what my problem was because sometimes I felt like I had to tell the truth to somebody to maintain some sort of yeah. integrity. Right. <laughs> and I, I remember telling this person and they said, just stop, <laughs> stop what you're doing. That was and his advice. Just stop. Yes. Just, just quit it. And from my experience, I'm not sure if this is everybody's experience, but for me, my eating disorder was like an addiction. And while my addiction wasn't something substance wise that maybe like a traditional addiction might be perceived as I was addicted to this pattern and me being an addict, I couldn't just stop. Yeah. That's the worst <laughs> advice you could give to an addict. Just stop yeah. doing what you're doing. Why don't you stop doing it? I mean, in that, when the person says that to you, the first thing that you think is you really don't understand yeah. me. Yeah. And it just doesn't feel very good when somebody comes at you with that response. Cause I mean, we were all seeking to be understood and mm -hmm. seen. So me, I was just like, well, I guess I should just stop then. Yeah. He said, <laughs> stop. Like, I'll just stop. If it was that easy, I probably would have done it already. Yeah. Like everyone would stop. <laughs> everyone would be over their addictions tomorrow. If it was that easy. True. Yes. True. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, I, so, I want to just, I hope people heard what you said just a moment ago. You were in a program, you were wrestling with this, but the problems didn't go away as soon as you started a program. The problems didn't go away for months or years right. after beginning to fight this battle with addiction. And I'm saying this to somebody who's struggling with an addiction right now. 
and they're hoping I'm going to go get treatment. I'm going to go get help. And they're hoping immediately the addiction is going to go away and I'm going to have victory over it. And I don't know of an example where it's not a long uphill battle. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like that was you, your experience as well. I would agree with that. I, thinking back to my experience, I, my first attempt, I was 20 years old. And by the time I got better, I was 28. Eight more years, and eight years later. Eight more years. Wow. Yeah. And I think that one of the reasons why it went on for so long before I got better was uh, my eating disorder didn't require me to, I, some people with eating disorders, they have to go into inpatient treatment yeah, right. because it's so severe and it yeah. jeopardizes their health to them just a way that if they don't, they might, they might die. Yeah. So for me, it never got that severe. And so there was parts of me that wished that I never wished for it to be more severe, but I almost wished that I would have to, something would make me stop and look at this yeah. and change it. I knew that would be traumatic. And I always, there was part of me that really wanted it. And then part of me that oh, hoped yeah. it would never happen yeah. because I didn't want the humiliation. Yeah. I didn't want the public exposure. I wanted the control to yeah. tell who I yeah. wanted to tell. And I think there became like a part within those eight years from the first moment I said, this can't stay. And the actual moment that I got better was I just started to believe that this would always be in my life. Really? And you kind of lost hope that you'd ever be able to conquer it. Yeah, I totally lost hope. And I just started to build my life around this idea that I would be struggling with this forever. And wow, that sucks. Yeah, it was a really like I look back on my life during that time and I look back at the decisions I made, the relationships I kept and all of the standards that I had for myself, they were totally different. I didn't believe that I could have something that I really wanted. I thought all of this is just good enough yeah. and I'm just going to have to accept it. And I kind of settled in a lot of different areas of my life to just to kind of put it simply. When you said eight years, I just heard there are Olympic athletes that spend less time trying to win a gold medal than you spent trying to win <laughs> over this addiction of, uh, uh, of an eating disorder. And I really want people to hear how powerful and how dangerous that, that addiction is. Um, not just how it, it may take you eight years or a lifetime of struggling with it, but how dangerous it is. Literally, it can kill you if you don't get uh, control over this addiction. So, Kara, what changed? How did you finally get some victory over it? The title of this podcast, Unbeatable, what was it that finally made you decide, I'm going to beat this? Oh, this might be my favorite question ever because it brings me back to how the season of my life felt. And I think that every single person struggling with an addiction is capable of reaching the point that I did. I totally agree. And what changed was I had a second attempt at therapy. The same thing happened. You quit therapy a I, second time? I quit it a second time. And this time I had even more support within my treatment program. I went for a more, um, multidisciplinary uh -oh. approach where I had a psychiatrist, I had a therapist, I had a dietitian, and I had a PA watching over me. So wow, I thought how team of I was so supported in my therapy program and I would go multiple times a week. And as you can imagine, that can also add up. So that happened again. I couldn't keep up. Couldn't with the pay the bills. bills. So this, I dropped out, but then within one year, something changed radically. I, I ended up getting married and I had this realization that, okay, I wasn't better yet. And I was really embarrassed that this problem had persisted Into so marriage. long. And I, yeah, I didn't want it to come with me. I didn't want to bring this issue in. I wanted it to 
be out of my life. Uh-huh. So that's why I had made that attempt at therapy. Cause I was like, I'm just going to get the help that I need. I don't want to like bring this into my relationship and having to drop out again. It was humiliating. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people knew that I struggled cause I told them and Oh, you started after, telling a lot of people that you were struggling. I did. I yeah. did. I was starting to be open with it because I wanted to, I was kind of hoping that part of me would feel responsible to keep working on myself. If I had people that knew I felt yeah. maybe accountable. Uh-huh. And I think over time, it just made me more afraid that they would judge me for not getting better. And oh, I felt I like totally time was that. running out for me. Yeah. And I felt like people were going to give up on me. But what happened was I ended up taking a trip about six months. It was, this was about October, November in the, in the year that I, everything changed. And I went on a solo trip where I just drove my car and I camped by myself. It was really scary, but I, I used this, sort of like personal retreat to reflect on my life. And during this time of reflection, I felt like I had a realization that I wanted to start an online business and I wanted to become an entrepreneur. I wanted a totally different life. I was struggling um, financially, even as a nurse. Um, I had built my life kind of how I was telling you, I built my life in a certain way because Uh I just thought like, that's what things are. And I think I made decisions that probably didn't serve my future very well. Um, So I decided I wanted things to change. And I thought at the time that the solution was just to make a lot more money and that would solve everything. And so already I like looking back, I should have been on the wrong track, but the amazing miracle thing that happened to me was during this process of realizing I wanted to become an entrepreneur, I started reading more books about, how to build habits Uh and stay disciplined to actually succeed at something. Because um, if anybody listening here is an entrepreneur, you know that you have to be really persistent and you have to stay with it because you're going to fail and you're going to see things that make you feel so discouraged every day. So I'm, (laughs) I'm entering into this, this business world that I didn't know was so painful. I thought I was just going to succeed at because I'm a high achiever. Everything works for me. And um, I do love the world of being an entrepreneur and, you know, being the person that I am today. But what happened that was amazing for my recovery was I started to read all these books about how to stay disciplined, how to make habits, how to structure your year in a way that actually helps you reach your goals. So Mm -hmm. I did an audit of my life. I sat down and I looked at everything and this is when I got home. I got home and I said, okay, I'm going to get this book. I'm going to read this one. I'm going to read this one. I started with three books and I was just going to dive right into it. I was going to, you know, work on this. And so one of the things that came up when I was doing my audit of my life was I have this eating disorder and I felt like my eating disorder was going to hold me back from being successful at this. And I pretty much decided that I was going to need to use a, I was going to need to use these books to help me learn how to recover. And I didn't really know how to do that because everything that I learned about eating disorder recovery came from trying to not control things so much. And so I thought to myself, I said, I don't think I'm going to be able to recover by actually controlling things more, but how can I, how can I actually build my life into the person that I want to be instead? And so I feel like I found my own recovery through prayer, this habit building, the changes Uh in my mindset, and they led me to specific things that I did. And within eight weeks, I had completely healed. I had Holy smokes, from eight years to eight weeks. Wow. Yes, yes. And it was just, I look back, I remember there was a point when I had reached that, that eight week mark, I I looked back on my life and I was just looking through all the goals that I was tracking. I was pretty meticulous about it in the beginning because I wanted to stay on track. And in order to succeed, I had to stay on track. So I looked at my 
my goal tracker and my habit tracker. And I, I looked at this eating disorder. Um, I wrote, I had written <laughs> stop, stop binge eating and just purging. Stop it. Yeah. And I was just like, uh, that's not a very sensitive way to recover from an eating disorder. That's, you can't just tell somebody to stop, but somehow the steps that I put in place led me to getting there. Yeah. And it was, it was just mind blowing when I sat there and I realized that I hadn't even thought about it in eight weeks. And I realized that I was onto something. I said, okay, well maybe I'm not totally in the clear because you know, I've tried to give this up before yeah. and it's come back, but yeah. I think something, I knew something had changed inside of my heart. I knew that I had started to care about different things and I started to care about who I was inside and what kind of life I was leading yeah. and what kind of example I was going to be and what I was creating moving forward. And when I made that shift is when I started to see the changes in my life. Yeah. I could tell by the smile on your face that this was a very powerful moment for you at that eight week mark. It's kind it of like an alcoholic uh, who stands up and says, I've been sober now for eight weeks. And that's a huge goal. If you've been oh, wrestling yeah. with this every day, day in and day out for 11 years in your case, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It was absolutely. When I can, it, the words that I use to describe this experience, um, one thing that I should tell you and everybody listening is when I was free from the eating disorder, I was eating regularly and my body was actually getting nutrients in a more balanced fashion. I was actually um, changing some of the things that yeah. I was putting in my meals and I was eating more vegetables and uh -huh. I was drinking more water and I was making more health conscious decisions. Yeah. I didn't think it was going to help me recover but it was part of the, the puzzle. But I started to feel like somebody had taken a blindfold off of me that I had for my whole life. I felt like the sky was sunny all the time. I felt like my mood had changed. I felt like my whole world was shifting. Yeah. And it was just, it was just a very um, joyful time in life. And it felt like this is what my life is supposed to feel like. Right. And everything started to make sense about why I didn't feel right staying sick. Uh -huh. And I started to just realize how wrong I was that at one point I just accepted that this was going to be yeah. my life. Oh yeah. Yeah. I hope people that have been through what you've gone through and battled and overcome addiction, they can all resonate with the language that you're using now. But for those that really haven't struggled with addiction, like you have, it's not all butterfly kisses and uni you know, unicorn wings um, when you start to get victory. But life, the, your whole outlook on life, every aspect of life starts to look a little bit different, right? That's so true. Yeah. I started to experience that. So after I realized that I was making so much progress in this area of eating and this addiction that had held me captive for so long, so many years in my life, Mind you, I didn't know what adult life was like without this disorder because it started when I was a teenager. Oh, yeah, so yeah. I was, I was learning, learning how to learn that basically. process. Yeah. I was learning all these things that I had never really been able to embody before. Like the power of nutrition. I used to just, to give you an example of what I mean by that, the mindset started to change. So I used to view nutrition as a way to control how I looked. Uh-huh. And now I started to view things as nutrition is what helps me stay healthy. It helps my brain work really well. It helps me feel enough energy to get through the yeah. day. And I noticed that my skin was starting to improve. Like there was a series of things that started to happen where I was like, wow, I didn't know that I could actually look younger or healthier or, you know, I didn't, you start to see yourself transform yeah. in front of your eyes and you just start to become so grateful every day. And, Yeah, it was just, it was an incredibly illuminating time. I just, I felt so much hope for my life. I felt like I was changing my life. That felt very empowering because yeah. I think that I had wanted to change my life for a very long time and not actually being able to do that or knowing how it felt really defeating and having that defeat 
anybody who struggles with an addiction knows what I'm talking about because when you're struggling with that pattern for years and years, all of those days, they start to string together and you start to lose hope in yourself that you can actually do this. And you start to listen to success stories or once in a while you'll hear like a testimonial about somebody recovering or healing from whatever it is that they struggled with. And then you start to think, wow, like I wish I could be like them. Right. And then you start to speak that to yourself like it's the truth. Uh-huh. And it's just really one thing that I want to pass on in my message throughout my life now is don't stop right there. You know, even if it doesn't feel like there's a solution right now, the more that you tell yourself that there isn't a solution for your problem, the more you start to agree with that yeah. and you don't look for solutions anymore. Yeah. And that can be very dangerous. I totally want to play the the music to Journeys Don't Stop Believing in the background right now because that's what I'm hearing you say. Um, hey, I uh, whether you know it or not, I had a long time love hate relationship with food. I wouldn't consider myself having any kind of food addictions, but spending many years in in uh, some very difficult. Uh, environment, very difficult training or very difficult um, missions in the military. I I learned the hard way um, how to develop this love hate relationship with food. Anyway, mm. so I got this little segment I try to do on this podcast as often as I can. It's called this high five. Um, and my high five segment is where I just describe like here's some things that I learned. These are kind of my top five. And when I was thinking about doing this episode with you, I was thinking about some of these top five experiences that I had with food, basically weeks or months of food deprivation at the extreme levels while I was in the U.S. military. And it caused me to change my outlook on food. Really, there are people out there that they're total foodies and they live their life to eat. I'm one of those guys that says, uh, the fact that I have to eat at all is a burden to me. And I only mm-hmm. eat because I have to feed the machine. But this for me came from the military. So can I tell you kind of my top five experiences um, with this while I was in the army? I would love it. Yeah. So, um, the army has these prepackaged meals that basically everything is bland. It all tastes terrible. They're designed so that you can sit them in the sun for five years, literally, and they won't expire or go bad. And I started to develop one of my first habits was to start to put hot sauce on anything. And I am now the guy who short of ice cream, I pretty much would put hot sauce on just about anything because it was my only way of trying to make bad food taste a little bit better. Throw some hot sauce on it. I had this um, violent uh, reaction to some boxed milk that I got when I was training in Central America. Get this, the kind of milk that comes in a little individual serving, not the kind of milk you get at the cafeteria in school. I'm talking about the kind of milk that you could leave sitting in the sun for two years, no exaggeration, and it doesn't expire. So no. I ate, I drank a box of this when I was out doing some training and started throwing up so violently and for so long that I became completely dehydrated and they had no. to take me to the hospital and put multiple IVs in me because of this oh, wow. box of milk. To this day, I have never touched that boxed milk stuff again. Um, (laughs) I was in uh, Afghanistan and you can't really get fresh juice or milk over there. So I drank water or Coke light. They don't call it diet Coke over there. They have this product that's basically the international version of diet Coca-Cola called Coke light. (laughs) I used Coke light for everything, even cereal in the morning. I would just pour Coke light in the cereal because it was either that or water. And I was so sick of drinking water. So I'm moving through this list of top five. (laughs) Um, Without a doubt, the most difficult uh, experience of my military career was in the Army's Ranger course. I lost 45 pounds um, with through extraordinary food deprivation. And I remember developing this intense desire for peanut butter. I hate peanut butter. Before Ranger School, 
I don't eat peanut butter with anything after ranger school. But when I was in ranger school, I wanted peanut butter so bad I could almost taste it, even though I hadn't had a spoonful of peanut butter for weeks. Um, and to this day, peanut butter always brings back these memories of near starvation. Literally, the, the guy next to me um, almost had to leave the military because of uh, starvation and because oh, wow. of um, the amount of extreme of weight that he lost. Um, but here's my greatest example, number five or number one on my list. I went um, one one training period, eight days with no uh, food, no, no, nothing to drink at all, except for a very basic amount of water. It was extremely cold weather. I was burning through calories and I had no zero calories to replenish it. So I was walking through the woods and I saw some pine needles on the ground. And I thought, I wonder if you can get any calories and any oh. vitamins and minerals out of pine needles. I'm going to throw them into a pot of water. I'm going to boil some pine needles and I'm going to try to drink some what I call pine needle tea and for anybody who's listening let me just help you out pine needles are the worst tasting substance on earth there's zero (laughs) calories zero nutrition just drink hot water because pine needle tea is disgusting and carries zero nutritional uh you know benefits with it so that for me is still to this day drinking that hot pot of pine needle tea thinking maybe I'll get one calorie out of this and perhaps some vitamins or minerals, but it's just absolutely disgusting. Um, I share that with you because I had these uh, decades of food, uh, periods of food deprivation just because of the training I went through in the military. And to this day, I tell my family, I would not eat at all except for God has created the human body in such a way that it needs food to, to exist. So for me, um, I eat, I eat healthy, I eat regularly, but I'm a guy who eats to live, um, and wish that there was a way that I could just go through my day and not have to eat. Um, just a little bit about my, uh, top five experiences with, uh, food deprivation in the army. Okay, so now I, 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 I'm rushing to get to this part because, Kara, I want you to tell people what it's like to now be freed and fierce. In fact, I use this on purpose because of the book that's about to come out. So can you tell everybody about the book? But also, bigger than that, tell everybody what it feels like to be freed and fierce from this addiction. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, it's so By cool By the way, did you like my segue there? I did. Thank you. And, I've been working oh, on wow. that. Oh, wow. Like, I can really, I can really appreciate your experiences with food and how they've shaped who you are and where they brought you now. Like that is, it's just not everybody gets to experience that in their life. And so like now that's shaped your relationship with food. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we can all just recognize how our experiences shape our relationship with food, I think we'll have a lot more awareness, but eating disorders are only that's only one piece to the puzzle. A lot yeah. of people think it's just about food and it's, it's more than that. No, yeah. It's control. It's body image. It's all of it. Yeah. A lot of stuff. And so I will happily answer how life is going and what is going on now. Um, I've been in recovery for about, I'm coming up on my four year anniversary. Awesome. Congrats. So, uh, yes. I am celebrating how just, this recovery has turned into my life changing in so many different ways. So after I recovered, I started to see how I had settled in all these different areas of my life and how I had honestly just, I built my life around the idea that I'm not worthy to have what I really want. Uh And so I started to address those areas and I've started to make different decisions and being able to make decisions that are in true alignment with who I am as a healed person, as somebody who's gone through that recovery, not only knowing that I've gone through something that difficult, but knowing that I, I figured out who I really am after that. I'd actually went through some identity building seasons. And so being able to do that as a healed person really got me in touch with who I am at my core. And so it's created just this really 
not easy life experience, but yeah. rewarding and yeah. fulfilling. And I feel incredibly free from any like anxiety around food and oppressive thoughts and feelings about, you know, there's still a lot of healing that I have to do in my mindset, but I've done so much healing that now I don't, I don't have to live every day wondering if I'm going to be okay if I yeah. gain a pound, yeah. you know? Right. Um, sometimes I do gain a pound and it's, you just, you know, learn to make peace with those fluctuations and realize like, okay, no one really cares. I shouldn't either. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, just do the best that you can to honor what's true for you and your health. And my favorite thing is just remembering, okay, I know what it takes to be sick. I know what it takes to perpetuate a, a life of sickness. So what is the opposite of that? And like looking for things that I can bring in that will help propel me towards the direction I want to go and the life that I want to feel and live. That's yeah. something that I've been yeah. able to do since recovering. And so that's been a very powerful part of my life. I've also um, been able to combine the way that I've been always been an achiever at heart. And I've put it into becoming a holistic health and wellness coach so I can start helping other yeah. women create their beliefs and habits and a healthier relationship with nutrition so they can have lifelong recovery too. So that is my dream come to life. And I was able to write a book this last fall. It's going to be launching in uh, the beginning of January. I'm January All right. 2nd. Come on. Yes. And so that is one of the most exciting parts of this journey so far is being able to put all of those things that I learned. It took me a few years to kind of get that realization and just the system. It's a pillar system. Yeah. So I firmly believe that eating disorder recovery is not simple. And I think that's the reason why I didn't recover for so many years. Mm -hmm. So my book includes the seven pillars that I believe are necessary for each person in order to achieve lifelong recovery. And so inside of the book, I write about each pillar and we talk about how to incorporate those into your life. There are special exercises. There's some stories about my life and how I was able to come to that certain realization. Yeah. And the whole purpose of it is for people who are maybe struggling in therapy like I was or wherever they're at in their eating disorder recovery process, that they will get something out of this book that helps carry them forward and change their thinking so they don't have to continue forward thinking that yeah. recovery is not an option for me. Yeah. This episode, by the way, Carol, will will go early January. So by this point, your book is about to be released. How can people find Freed and Fierce? I'm so glad that you asked that. It's going to be available on Amazon Kindle All right. in ebook digital format. It'll be available in paperback. And then later in January, maybe early February, it's going to be released on audible.com for right. anybody who likes to listen to a book instead of read it. I know that's becoming more popular. I'm personally doing that myself yeah. a lot, a lot with a lot of books, but I'm going to make it available in audible. And then we'll see, I, I plan to release also a hardcover version nice. um, a little bit later as well. So, but yeah, Amazon will be the first place you can All find right. it. Hey, um, if you're listening to this episode and you want a chance to get that book, we'll put a link in the notes to how you can find it. We'll also um, try to make sure that you know how to connect with her or you're helping other people that are struggling um, with your brand new podcast. Tell everybody about stress-free living. Absolutely. So it, it's interesting um, that you bring up the podcast because about a year ago, I started the show without a complete focus on eating disorder recovery. And I was thinking, we're going to focus on how to live a healthy life. But then I realized in my heart that I wanted to help people with eating disorders live a healthy life. So that's what I do in the podcast. Now, I every episode that I create is focused around a solution that other people that are struggling with eating disorders can take away those episodes and start to shape their own beliefs and create really healthy ones. And sometimes I talk about nutrition because I learned so much in nutrition yeah. that helped me actually recover that I feel like it's so important and shouldn't be left out. And so I, I help 
other people with eating disorders be able to change their beliefs. And I also help them understand nutrition that can be very helpful for them during their process yeah. of recovery. So that's what my show is about. We're actually um, doing a holiday series right now. All right. Um, it'll, all of the episodes will be available once yeah. this episode airs. So definitely, Great. definitely go check that out. I want to tell people who want to know more about you, just go straight to her show, go search for stress-free living. And again, we'll put a link to that in the notes to this episode this week too. I feel like I could talk for another hour with you. But <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> I really just want to give you a chance. Would you wrap this episode up today by telling somebody who's struggling one piece of advice, the guy or the gal who's really wrestling with an addiction and they've heard people say, just stop, but they can't. They've tried and they're ashamed of themselves because they just can't get over it. Give us one piece of advice that they can do this week to start to make some progress in this area. Absolutely. So if this is your struggle, what I want you to do today is just to sit down and do an audit on your life and just take a moment to think about what you want your life to look like. Because a lot of times you might not be thinking about that. It might not be front and center. But if you take time to get real with yourself about what you really want, I bet you'll be really surprised about what you're capable of doing. And I like to say that there is a place with, within each person that the eating disorder can't go with you. Yeah. So where's that place that you're going that your eating disorder can't follow? And yeah. that's what I'd say to you today. That is an awesome piece of advice for all of the unbeatable audience. If you want to be freed and fierce like Kara, then I want you to just today take her advice, find a few moments, sit down in a quiet place and take an audit and figure out what is this area of your life that your addiction cannot go with you and start moving in that direction. Yes. Cara, you're awesome. Thank you for being on this episode. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. I had a wonderful time. Yeah, I just loved too. it. Thank you so much. Yep. We'll see you around. Isn't she amazing? I want everyone to experience the same kind of victory over struggles that Cara has experienced. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to give away a free copy of her brand new book, Freed and Fierce. All you got to do to register for a free copy of this book is join the Unbeatable Army email list. You can join that list by going to unbeatablearmy.com. Hey, if you found this podcast for the first time, would you go ahead and subscribe to us on one of your social media platforms? Just search for at Unbeatable Podcast and you can find us pretty much anywhere. And if you've been listening for a while and you really like what you're hearing, why don't you rate us on your favorite podcast platform? Just tell the world what you think about this podcast. And thank you so much for joining us for this powerful episode of Unbeatable. I'll see you right back here next week. God bless.